Well, ordinarily, on days like Pentecost Sunday, on or Easter or Christmas, uh, those big days, church calendar, I often feel an impossible dilemma of sorts. How do I faithfully preach today on the ministry of the Holy Spirit in one sitting, <laughs> one day? How can I speak of the wonders of God and the Holy Spirit in one day? It's a pretty tall order, probably impossible. But there's more to today than just that, isn't there? Given the cancer of racism that marks our country and that does kill our citizens, body and soul, I think it affects all of us, what would God have us do? Um, that's a question that has really haunted me this week. Uh, Karl Barth, a uh, famous Swiss theologian who stood against Hitler and who stood against the Nazi regime, always said that here's how we're to engage the world. We're to have the Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other. That's a good word. So though I think this is going to be clunky, I do hope uh, for that today. I hope that we do have the scriptures as our anchor and the world and the other and what's happening. And the anchor point today for us is going to be Acts 2. That's where we're spending our time. So I hope you'll journey with me in and through this passage, uh, clunky though it may be, okay? So uh, as Luke began, the Gospel of Luke, with the birth of Jesus, Acts begins similarly with a birth, and that is the birth of the church. Pentecost is often called the birthday of the church, rightly so. Our life together began on that day and, and continues. What Jesus called us all to, Matthew 28, the Great Commission, go to the all corners of the earth, baptizing me in the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. What he called us to then is fully set in motion in Pentecost, and the Lord pours himself into us. So the way I think of it, it's not only our birthday. Pentecost is the day we became a family. Uh, if you will rewind back with me to First Peter, uh, that First Peter passage, I think it was chapter 2, I don't remember, uh, that we talked about a few weeks ago. Once you were not a people, now you are. Once you were a people, now you are. We're now one body. We're now the household of God. That familiar language we use of brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit eternally binding us together as a family. So within the promise of that, God's promise, is that within the communion of saints, there are no free agents, there's no lone rangers, there's no strangers. Also, no second-class citizens in the household of God. It is not to be that way. We belong to the Lord, and we belong to each other, as we shall soon see as we dig all the more deeply into this passage. The body is to be a picture of the new heaven and the new earth, this family. Okay? This is the way things are supposed to be, this family. This is to be a witness to the world, this family. So in Pentecost is the beginning of that miraculous fellowship and of our global mission of love and of mercy. This is where it starts. Acts 2, 1 through 11. There's a couple of prophecies that are being fulfilled here, which we need to at least know and be mindful of as we move into this uh, chapter. And it carries forward beyond just these 11 verses. It carries forward through all of Acts, through the rest of the New Testament. It carries forward, I think, to today. One of them is Isaiah, Isaiah 32, 15. Uh, Till the Spirit is poured out on us from on high, and the desert becomes a fertile field, and the fertile field seems like a forest. In other words, the dry spell is broken. 
drought ends and the impossible happens. The desert becomes a forest. So this is life springing up in impossible places, which is God's specialty. That's one picture, one prophecy being fulfilled and carrying forward. The other one, which you might be more familiar with, Joel 2, 28 to 32. And Peter's going to quote this later on in Acts 2, beyond our passage. I'll pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your men, young men will see visions. Your old men dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I'll pour out my spirit in those days. And they will prophesy. I'll show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. These prophecies are coming to fulfillment in this Pentecost Sunday. The believers are all gathered in one place, uh, all of them meaning about 120 of them. We learn this later from Acts 1.15. What, here's the picture you need to have. It's men and it's women. It includes the 12 apostles. The rest of Jesus' inner circle, Mary, Mary Magdalene, all, they're all there on top of other believers. They're all there. Jesus told them to wait in Jerusalem and that they'd receive power from on high. Uh, now, what are they doing as they wait? We don't know exactly. They might be celebrating the Festival of Weeks. That's a Jewish festival. So they might be celebrating that. That's a, one of the big Jewish feasts. You know, it's also known as the Day of First Fruits or known as Pentecost. They might be doing that. But we do know, what we know is they're gathered and they're waiting. And that's what's important for us to know. And suddenly there came from heaven a mighty rushing wind, lest we doubt the divine origins of the Holy Spirit. Suddenly there came from heaven a mighty rushing wind. And this is not just some meteorological oddity, okay? And these divided tongues of fire come and rest upon them. So picture this, winds and fire. Uh, ordinarily, these are terrifying and startling and supernatural signs. But these are signs and symbols that are old, okay? In the Old Testament theophanies, the wind is a sign of God's spirit. We see it in 2 Samuel and in Job and Ezekiel. Then there's the fire. Most certainly recalls Israel's story on Mount Sinai, like Exodus 19. But I think what's most recent in their memory is probably John the Baptist. Remember, he spoke of the Holy Spirit as that purifying and cleansing fire of judgment. None of these associations, wind and fire, are particularly comforting. <laughs> uh, they're loud and they're unruly and kind of scary. And yet what's interesting is when the Holy Spirit falls upon this gathering, fills them up, their response isn't marked by fear. Instead, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, it's unclear whether this is the gift of tongues in the charismatic sense that some claim it is, these being angelic and he heavenly utterances, or if they're merely speaking in a human language other than their own. It's not clear. And I think focusing on that misses the point entirely. What we have here are people of different backgrounds, a different geography, of different race, and culture, and they're somehow able to understand each other. Think about that. That is a miracle. <laughs> People of different backgrounds, races, geography, culture, and they're able to understand each other. Think on that. The Holy Spirit miraculously bridges the human gaps that separate people. We need to think on that for a moment. We need to linger on the miracle of that moment. 
But let that set in. That's the first thing that happens. Because as this is described in this passage, there are people of every nation here. Every nation under heaven are present. Jews, Jewish converts, proselytes, they're all here. And they're able to understand each other. What are they saying? Well, uh, there's testimonies. There's praise going on. Everyone's talking about the mighty works of God. I mean, it's worship that's happening here. It's praise that's happening here. Now, what are they saying exactly? I don't know. I would love to know. Uh, All we know is that uh, as we read this account further, we see that they're so slap happy. They're so joyful that um, some later think that they were drunk. It's five o'clock somewhere. Look at these guys. No, no, that's not the case. So the first thing, pay attention to this. The first thing that God, the Holy Spirit, empowers these men and these women to do is to communicate, to understand each other. Uh, It's easier to focus on the more visible things the Holy Spirit, God, the Holy Spirit does, right? The power, those outward manifestations of the gifts. The first thing that God, the Holy Spirit does amongst these men and women is to allow them to understand each other and for them to communicate. Some have even called Pentecost the redemptive reversal of the Tower of Babel. Very interesting. And this first encounter with the Holy Spirit is to be marked by the shared praise of God. I find this fascinating and wonderful. This is a picture, again, of the new heaven and the new earth. This is a picture of what and how things should be. Okay? This isn't just pie in the sky. This is a picture of God's design of how things should be. Should be. The Holy Spirit's first order of business focuses on unity of women and men of all nations and all races. That's the first thing out of the gate. This is the body of Christ, the family, the household of God, uh, the living stones who make up the temple. We are one living, breathing entity made up of many different people from all over. The worship that we take part of every Sunday It's not our own. We're doing it with the saints around the world. We're doing it with the saints past, present, future. Okay. I love that Luke mentions the divided tongues that rest on each person because on one hand, it's the unifying sign of belonging to the fellowship and the family, but it's also a separate sign that marks each individual. So it's that paradox of the unity and diversity uh, that's present in God's family directly mirroring God's own Trinitarian nature, mind you, but that's for next week, Trinity Sunday. So carry this away with you. If you don't get anything today, I hope you get this out of the sermon. God, the Holy Spirit, connects us and brings us together, individually to God, corporately to God and each other. That's what happens. That's the fellowship of the Holy Spirit that we speak of. This is the first act, the first act, in order that we can praise and worship God together. This comes about before the more obvious outward manifestations and gifts of the Holy Spirit, before those things that are sort of we we equate with power. So put briefly, unity and connection comes before the power. How about that? We're made a family before we are tasked with mission and empowered to do so. I think that is noteworthy. So please, please pay attention to that. So I want you to rewind with me if you can. This seems like ages ago to me. Think back to early 2020, the year that it's been. 
Think back to our annual meeting, okay? This was mid-January, if you can. Rewind with me. We talked about three specific growing edges for King of Kings. Leaning into Jesus, building deeper community, and growing in the Holy Spirit. Okay, those three things. Uh, how has God used this pandemic and now uh, racial strife to these ends? Well, let me speak to the pandemic piece, and we'll speak to uh, the reality of racism more as we go on. Because of the pandemic, I think we're leaning into Jesus in new ways. I think we're more aware of our vulnerability, of our fragility, and of our finitude. So we're wrestling with that. We're feeling that. We're acknowledging that, I hope. I hope we're finding some comfort in the Good Shepherd and that we're looking for guidance because we're living closer to the bone. Okay? Ironically, uh, though we have distance between us, some of our relational ties have been strengthened. The pandemic has increased our hunger for connection, and the lack of in-person fellowship has clarified why Christian community might actually matter more than we thought it did. Um, perhaps our community has deepened in these days in some ways. I hope it has. I see signs of that. I hope that's true. Which brings me to our final growing edge, growing in the Holy Spirit, obviously relevant for today and the season that follows. Ordinary time, also called the season after Pentecost, where we work out uh, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So growing in the Holy Spirit, I want to talk about that. We need to be clear, uh, just to give a little, I need to lay a little groundwork here. We need to be clear about God, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not a theological concept. The Holy Spirit is not just some divine, powerful force. God, the Holy Spirit, is also not that somewhat embarrassing third member of the Trinity. It's not like the weird uncle that comes to your extended family reunion who drinks a little much, says some inappropriate things, but you kind of like, but are a little wary of, okay? That's not God, the Holy Spirit, okay? The Holy Spirit is a person, just like the Father, just like the Son, co-equal, co-eternal. We believe that God, the Holy Spirit, is active and alive and involved in the life of the church, as are all the attendant gifts of the Holy Spirit. So these gifts are given for, for the common good, for the building up of the body. They're normative in our lives, individually, and in our corporate life together. We could all use to become charismatic, and I use that, more charismatic, and I use that in the historical biblical sense, not in the last couple of centuries American sense, uh, or global sense for that matter. So there's nothing we need to fear here, because when we talk about growing the Holy Spirit, all it means really is growing in the Lord, if we take the Trinity seriously. But it's tricky because some of us have positive experiences of the Holy Spirit, some of us quite the opposite. Now, that's fair enough, and I'm going to assume that's the case. So, growing in the Holy Spirit. I want to look at that in two different ways. But rather than focusing on the, the flashier or the more obvious manifestations, the, the outward manifestations associated with the Holy Spirit, that's always the low-hanging fruit, and it's not that's not true. But I want us instead to look inward. I want to look at the root of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. First, I want to look at that individually, okay? Inwardly, what does the Holy Spirit do in us? What does it mean that God, the Holy Spirit, is a deposit in our hearts? Think of this in this season. Hasn't God, the Holy Spirit, 
been working on all of us in these days when we can't go out in the world and just do? Hasn't God been the Holy Spirit been working on you? Hasn't God the Holy Spirit been whittling away at the rough edges in our hearts, bringing our idols and our brokenness uh, to the surface in order to make good redemptive use of those things in these days? Hasn't God the Holy Spirit been at work changing you? The Holy Spirit is about inner transformation and change. Now, I don't know about you, but do you think changing and transforming the human heart is any less miraculous than turning water into wine or curing a disease? I don't. God the Holy Spirit is all about inner transformation and change, which then translates into outward action. It's a renovation of our hearts, right? That's what God is about. The Lord has never been about behavior modification. Never, ever, never, ever. He's always been about real change that comes from our hearts. Just look at Mary Magdalene, look at the apostles, look at Paul, look at all of us. So first point, if you're a points person, to grow in the Holy Spirit individually, it simply means to grow in the Lord, to yield, to change, to grow, to let go of the old, okay? To giving yourself over to this divine revolution of the heart. So individually, it's allowing God to change us and yield to that and growing in the Lord, okay? But lest I think it's just about my spiritual growth or all about my spiritual growth, let's go back to Acts 2. Let's go back to the story we just heard. This story reminds us we are not alone, right? We've been brought into a family. We've been empowered with gifts for the common good of that family. Once we weren't a people, but now we are, First Peter tells us. We're a unified, a connected, divine family. One body, many parts. Again, no second-class citizens are here. It doesn't exist. Uh, and when it does, we have to call it out. It's not right. And we are bound together for eternity, to which some of you are going, oh boy, I didn't sign up for that. True, you didn't. And yet, this is our family. Now, if, if we're honest, students of human nature, and I like to think that we are, I hope that we are, this is a miracle. To, for, this, for this family to be brought together is a miracle. And this miraculous fellowship of the Holy Spirit brings about outward praise and visible worship of our Lord. You can see this in Acts 2, 1 through 11. And if we read further, we encounter even more. We see the true power and the witness of a Christian community. We see this. We see the body of Jesus on display for the world to see. We, friends, are the living, breathing sacrament of Jesus, his hands and his feet in this world. We are his flesh, blood, and bone icons. That is the church. When we do community poorly amongst ourselves and or when we turn a blind eye to the ills and injustices of the world, is it any wonder that the world is then skeptical or judgmental or, yes, even angry, even if it's messy? Our divine commitment to one another matters a great deal. The giving of ourselves, our sacrifice for the life of the world matters. They'll know we're Christians by our love, not just for one another, but for the world. We can start here within our own congregation. And this is the second point, if you're a points person. 
Lord, how can King of Kings grow in the Holy Spirit as a community, as a church? Lord, how can we grow in the Holy Spirit as a community? There's a simple, easy answer, which takes a lifetime to work out. We live into the realities that God has already set in place. He's made us a family. Whether or not we live live into that and recognize that is another matter. But that groundwork is there. So what's our task then? Well, we do the hard work of community. We are intentional about that. It means we're willing to grow and to change as a church. It means we work to love one another well. It means we have each other's backs. It means we're committed to one another. It also means we move faithfully in mission, that we move out. It means that we love the world as Christ loved us sacrificially and to the end. Let me close here. It's easy to forget, I find it easy to forget at least, that the scriptures themselves were written by the oppressed, by the enslaved, and by the persecuted minorities of their day. Have you ever thought about that? Yep. And the Lord's call to his people was to never forget that they were slaves in Egypt and to treat others with kindness because they remembered what it was like to be enslaved. They remembered what it was like to be without hope. Okay. We, and I mean us now, we were grafted into this story centuries later. The New Testament says that we were adopted into this family. So we're the Johnny and the Julie come lately's, uh, but this story involves all of us. We're part of it. Now, while we might not be literal slaves or prisoners, we were once slaves to sin, and we were certainly once prisoners of darkness. And Jesus set us free. So we're to actively remember, and we do this every Sunday, our great rescue. We're to remember that with gratitude and not entitlement. Okay? You're going to hear that in, in the liturgy play out as we move towards the table. We're never to forget that. Why? so that we will love our neighbors as God has loved us. That's why. So that we will seek their good by putting skin in the game with action, bound together and empowered by, guess what? God, the Holy Spirit. There it is. Let me take this a step further, and I will end here. I want to conclude with a more recent chapter in The Story. I mean the Christian story. And it's a redemptive story of the global church. But ironically, it begins in tragedy. It begins in Africa in 1994, and it begins in the genocide in Rwanda. It is a devastating story, which I'm not going to go into all the details, but I encourage you to read about it because it really is our story, and I'll explain why I think that is later. It is a devastating story. In this small country, and in a very brief time frame, anywhere between half a million and a million people are murdered. Okay? And by and large, the global community stood by and did nothing. Fast forward to 2000, when the Anglican Mission in America is formed, EMEA, okay? It's formed. It was the precursor largely to the Anglican Church in North America. EMEA was a church planning movement uh, formed and forged out of the courage of Rwandan bishops. Huh, that still gets me. Uh, King of Kings and many of the Anglican churches, the ACNA churches that you know of, probably wouldn't exist were it not for their courage and their action. 
Why did our Rwandan brothers and sisters step in on our behalf? Well, let me sum it up this way. And I'm going to use the words of one of the Rwandan bishops at that time. Here's what he had to say. When the genocide happened in 1994, the world stood by and was silent. We believe there is a spiritual genocide happening in the West, and we will not remain silent. Friends, this is the church. That is the body of Jesus. That is the household of God. That is what it means to be brothers and sisters. That is the fellowship of God, the Holy Spirit. I think we can learn still from their humbling example. I think what we need to ask as a church today and in coming months, where can we, where should we act? Where are we to speak up? Where are we not to remain silent? Okay. Where are we not to remain silent? I think that's a big one. Whose corner are we in? Are we in the corner of the vulnerable? Or are we more content to stay comfortable and not to risk anything and not to put skin in the game? So I'm praying that God, the Holy Spirit, would guide us, would unite us, would empower us, and finally embolden us as we live out the call to be the church for the life of the world. In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.